You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. The European Medicines Agency says stolen emails about vaccine development were altered before being dumped online. Another backdoor is found associated with the SolarWinds supply chain campaign. DNS cache poisoning vulnerabilities are described. The FBI renews warnings about vishing. Iran's enemies of the people disinformation campaign. Rick Howard previews his hash table discussion on Solarigate. Verizon's Chris Novak looks at cyber espionage. And the FBI makes an arrest in connection with a laptop taken during the Capitol Hill riot. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, January 19th, 2021. The threat actors who stole COVID-19 vaccine documents appear to have altered them before releasing them online, the European Medicines Agency says. The material stolen, EMA says, included internal confidential email correspondence dating from November relating to evaluation processes for COVID-19 vaccines. Some of the correspondence has been manipulated by the perpetrators prior to publication in a way which could undermine trust in vaccines. Emails about the vaccine development process were altered to give the appearance that this process was less credible than it might otherwise have been believed to be. And EMA stands by the effectiveness and credibility of its reviews. The corrupted altered data thus appear to have been emails about vaccine development and not data collected in the course of that development or during evaluation of vaccines. Symantec reports another discovery in the Solarigate Threat Actors Armamentarium, Raindrop, a backdoor used to drop cobalt strike. Raindrop bears some similarities to Teardrop, malware earlier identified as having been delivered by the sunburst backdoor. Both load Cobalt Strike Beacon, but Raindrop uses a custom packer for Cobalt Strike. Raindrop also appears to be used to propagate across networks and may have been used selectively against high-interest targets. Various sources are warning against seven vulnerabilities in the widely used DNS forwarding client for Unix-based operating systems, DNS Mask. Vulnerable systems could be susceptible to DNS cache poisoning. 
The seven vulnerabilities are being collectively tracked as DNS spook. JSOF has a page up devoted to DNS spook, and users of affected systems are advised to apply patches as they become available. On Friday, the U.S. FBI renewed and updated a December warning about an Iranian campaign, Enemies of the People, intended to exacerbate U.S. domestic mistrust and division by, quote, threatening the lives of U.S. federal, state, and private sector officials using direct email and text messaging, end quote. The operation also involves menacing doxing. The Bureau's warning says, quote, The Iranian cyber actors have sought to intimidate some of the officials with direct threats, including an image of an apparent text communication between the EOTP actors and an unidentified individual in the United States purportedly supporting the operation. Individuals in the United States intent on disrupting the peaceful transition of power potentially may be inspired by and act upon these influence efforts to harass, harm, threaten, or attack individuals specifically identified. Enemies of the people represents an extreme form of this tendency in influence operations. CyberScoop reports seeing a U.S. intelligence assessment that claims Russian and Chinese services are using the Capitol Hill riot as an occasion for propaganda and disinformation. Those two nations' styles have been consistent with that on display in past campaigns. Russian disinformation has been negative and disruptive concentrating on producing red-meat conspiracy theories about the Capitol Hill riot. Chinese disinformation has been characteristically positive, that is, not positive in the sense of happy or optimistic, but positive in the sense of persuading its international audience of a particular position. More accurately, two positions. First, the United States is a power in decline. And second, this is what happens when you tolerate democratic demonstrations. You get anarchy, which is why, in Beijing's line, it's a good thing they crack down on Hong Kong. At the end of last week, the FBI also issued a private industry notification warning of increased rates of vishing aimed at theft of corporate remote access credentials with a view to furthering privilege escalation. A common gambit is an invitation to log into a bogus VPN page. Bleeping Computer observes that this is the second such alert the FBI has issued since the onset of the pandemic. The FBI sees this particular warning as calling out a new style of criminal activity. Quote, Cyber criminals are trying to obtain all employees' credentials, not just individuals who would likely have more access based on their corporate position, the alert says. Once they have some initial access, even relatively lowly access, It's then the criminal's task to work their way into other, more sensitive precincts of the organization's network. And finally, the FBI is investigating whether a Pennsylvania woman, identified as Riley June Williams, stole a laptop or a hard drive from U.S. Speaker Nancy Pelosi's office during the Capitol Hill riots with the intent of selling it to Russian intelligence services. The Washington Post says the suspect has now turned herself in and been arrested. Politico, which broke the story over the weekend, calls the charges bizarre, by which they mean startling and not inherently implausible. The FBI says it was tipped off by a source identified only as a former romantic partner of the suspect. The ex-boyfriend, as the New York Times describes the tipster, said that Ms. Williams intended to sell the computer device to a friend in Russia, who then planned to sell the device to SVR, Russia's foreign intelligence service. 
The transfer of the device to the Russian middleman seems to have fallen through for unclear reasons, if indeed there was any actual plan to do so, and Ms. Williams is believed to have retained the laptop in her possession. The investigation is continuing. The laptop Speaker Pelosi's staff reported stolen is said to have been used only for presentations, but it's unclear what, if anything, Ms. Williams may have taken, and what, if anything, she hoped to turn over to the SVR. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is the CyberWire's Chief Analyst and Chief Security Officer, Rick Howard. Rick, welcome back. Hey, Dave. So last week, you analyzed the Solar Storm campaign, and you did it through a first principle lens. And you concluded that the best strategy that could have helped there was a robust zero-trust deployment. Now, I know you've invited some of our subject matter experts to the CyberWire hash table this week to discuss that idea. Uh, did they come up with any practical advice? Indeed, they did. I talked to both Gary McCallum, the USAA Chief Security Officer, and Don Welch, the Penn State University CIO. They said that the two most practical things InfoSec teams could do to defend against this kind of supply chain attack is one, a human process of two-person control, and two, a combination of human process and security automation called privileged access management. And mm. For the two-person control, I want you to think about our old hacker movie, Dave, our favorite one, War Games. I know we both yes. love it. Yes, yes, indeed. Right? So do you remember the opening scene where the two Air Force officers go down into the nuclear missile silo, and because of, you know, reasons, uh, they are told to launch the missiles? Well, right. as audience members, we learned that you can't do that destructive act unless two people, in this case, U.S. Air Force officers, 
turn the launch keys at the same time. And that is what Gary and Don are recommending. For critical operations, let's say, I don't know, issuing new authentication tokens to your cloud environment, uh, just to name one, uh, maybe it shouldn't be possible to make changes like that unless two people authorize the change. Hmm. And then for privileged access management, uh, we did two entire episodes of identity management back in season two of the CSO Perspectives podcast. But it's basically policy and automation to control actions for critical or privileged systems. In fact, Don prefers that solution over the two-person control because it's less costly in terms of people resources. Here's Don. Again, things like uh, privileged access management with uh, monitoring of uh, everything that is done you know, in those system administrations so that you can go back and find out that uh, something has gone wrong and hopefully catch it, you know, before too much damage is done. Not as good, but uh, once again, it's uh, a lot less expensive to implement a solution like that than it is uh, that uh, two-person control. Wow, interesting stuff uh, for sure. So uh, if folks want to check out uh, the uh, hash table discussion, it is CSO Perspectives. That is part of CyberWire Pro. You can find out all about it on our website, thecyberwire.com. Rick Howard, thanks for joining us. Thank you, sir. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Chris Novak. He is the Global Director of Verizon's Threat Research Advisory Center. Uh, Chris, always great to have you back. Um, we want to talk today about the report that you all recently published. This is Verizon's Cyber Espionage Report. Uh, take us through, first, uh, what prompted the creation of the report? Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks, Dave. Always a pleasure to be here. And uh, it's our first time ever putting together a report specifically on cyber espionage for, I mean, over 10 years now, we've put together our data breach investigations report, which really kind of focused on the entire threat landscape. And lately, we've been seeing an incredible amount of interest in diving more deeply into what does the cyber espionage world look like. And honestly, I think it's probably even more um, kind of profoundly topical these days with with what seems to be going on in the news Mm. Um, and so, so we really just decided, hey, let's let's take that plunge and dive uh, dive specifically into that topic. So we we kind of created this separate report just to look at that avenue. Well, take us through what are some of the highlights, the key things that you all uh, uh, bring to into focus here. Sure, I, I mean, I'd say that probably the biggest things, and you know, maybe for most people, not a surprise, but you know, when we carve out the data and look at cyber espionage breaches. They typically take much longer to discover, which, again, I don't think is a surprise. Typically on the order of months to years, containment 
typically, if you're lucky, maybe days, but typically that's also ranging out to, you know, months. And, you know, that's, you know, when you look at the the entire macro landscape, that's substantially longer than what you'd see in, in other kinds of breaches. The other thing I'd also say is that a lot of them would be something that I would classify as being kind of underreported. You know, typically these threat actors are after a different kind of data. So most of what we see in the broader landscape is typically financially motivated. They're going after, you know, PII, PCI, stuff like that, that they can easily sell. But the cyber espionage landscape is quite different in that it's typically looking for trade secrets, intellectual property, more of what you would think of in a traditional espionage kind of sense. And it's not necessarily data that someone's going to steal and sell, but typically it's something that someone is going to steal and use for their own gain. And in many cases, since it's not something like PCI or PII or something like that, there's typically also not the same kind of regulatory duties to notify. Hmm. Um, so we actually believe a lot of that is, is highly underreported. Yeah, how how does an organization uh, judge or calibrate if if the the amount of relevance that this report has to them? Yeah, and I think honestly, you have to look at your threat model, right? You have to look and see what is it that you are most concerned about. What kind of business are you in? And I think everybody kind of has a little bit of everything going on. But typically, you know, if you're looking at certain kinds of industries like education, financial services, information management, manufacturing, mining and utilities, professional services, and public sector, those are the industries that we see most heavily hit by cyber espionage kinds of attacks. So if you're in one of those areas, then then it's definitely something you've got to be figuring into your threat model. And I think honestly – a lot of organizations in those industries have probably not put as much effort into it, partially because it is probably one of the hardest things, right? You're you're trying to defend against an adversary that is extraordinarily persistent, and they typically want into a specific target because of something only that target has, right? If you compare and contrast that with what we typically see in financially motivated uh, breaches, you think of financially motivated breaches, the threat actor – they don't care who they're stealing the funds or the data from as long as it is something that they can monetize. If they can't get into victim A, they're happy to try victim B, C, D, and so on. But when you look at espionage, that's generally very different because I want into to target A or target B because of the very specific data that maybe they and only they actually have. How important is it for organizations to share information, to collaborate here, to help spread the word about these sorts of efforts? I think it's critically important. It's, it's interesting that you mentioned that because one of the things that, that people are always asking me is, you know, what is it that they can be doing? And, you know, one of the things that I always say as it relates to espionage is because they're typically lower and slower kinds of attacks. They're typically more sophisticated or almost um, artistic or creative in some ways in that the, the way that they actually go about their attacks are maybe a bit more nuanced than kind of your plain Jane vanilla kind of uh, cyber attacks. Sharing the information is is even more critical, right? And so typically I'm talking to more and more organizations to understand what is it that they're doing from a threat intelligence perspective? How is it that they are either getting information from others that may be relevant to them? And when they see something, how are they sharing it with others in the community? Because, 
you know, I can't stress enough how important it is. It's almost like your neighborhood watch in where you live, right? It's important hmm. that if the neighbors see something suspicious, you're sharing it with the other neighbors, right? You all kind of go out there and you try to protect the entire neighborhood. If you're just in it for yourself, then maybe you'll be safe. But at the same time, you also don't know then what others may be aware of that they're not sharing with you, right? So how do we protect everybody in an industry or a community at large against these kind of uh, threat actors? Yeah. All right. Well, it's uh, the Cyber Espionage Report from Verizon. Chris Novak, thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure, Dave. Thanks. that's the cyberwire for links to all of today's stories check out our daily briefing at the cyberwire.com and for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field sign up for cyberwire pro it'll save you time and keep you informed bring out your best listen for us on your alexa smart speaker too don't forget to check out the grumpy old geeks podcast where i contribute to a regular segment called security ha I join Jason and Brian on their show for a lively discussion of the latest security news every week. You can find Grumpy Old Geeks where all the fine podcasts are listed and check out the Recorded Future podcast, which I also host. The subject there is threat intelligence, and every week we talk to interesting people about timely cybersecurity topics. That's at recordedfuture.com slash podcast. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Carrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.